working. Mate, we're on. Simon Upton. <laughs> we cracked it. <laughs> What's happening, mate? Um, well, yeah, there's uh, lots and not a lot, I guess. <laughs> Would be my best answer to that. Um, all, the, all the way from the northern beaches, Sydney, Australia, hey? Yeah, it's uh, just coming up on 9.30 here in the morning and it's... Uh, Weather's been amazing here, you know. We're sort of having, having a little bit of an Indian summer right now. There's uh, sadly been no surf because, um, you know, with all these days off and the beaches just down the hill from us, uh, it's sort of been nice to just use that few hours as my supposed exercise and just go and get in the waves for a few hours each day. It makes everything seem a little bit easier. Yeah, absolutely. So they've let you kind of sneak into the water, have they? We're allowed to, uh, we're allowed, part of the regulations and the rules laid out are uh, that we actually can um, do exercise and uh, surfing is considered exercise. So that's sort of what I do anyway, really. Um, so, yeah, we're allowed to do that, thank God, because a lot of the beaches in Sydney have been closed. Bondi, a few of them, well, Bondi actually just got opened, reopened yesterday. Um, so we've found out in the last few weeks we've had, a lot of people coming up here on the northern beaches because even some of the beaches here, Manly and that have been closed. It's sort of been weird why they haven't just shut everything. But um, it's nice to be able to have that area still being able to be used to go go for a surf, go for a swim. Um, you know, I think it's really important. It's actually great that so many people are out and about exercising. I just can't get over how many people are on the streets just walking. And well, that's what I was going to say. Is it more or less people out right now? Way more. Really? There's so many people out on the streets, walking, taking the dog for a walk. I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it's obviously there's, there's so many bad things that are happening in the world right now, but if there's one little good thing, it's that everyone's getting out and exercising at least and getting out and getting fresh air because I think that the mental health, in, the whole mental health thing that mm. hasn't really been spoken about here too much, I know, is something that's probably going to rear its ugly head a lot in the coming months, you know, when everything sort of subsides a little bit, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you got a lot of people sitting at home drinking alcohol. I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Oh, is yeah. that? That's crazy. That's yeah. Crazy. I mean, it's, it's madness, but uh, do they make them wear masks in Sydney or not? No, no. no. You can, it's up to you whether or not you want to wear a mask. So, oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah California's taking a different approach. I think they're out in California. It's mandatory. You can't you can't go anywhere without a, a mask. So, yeah, I mean, everybody's got their own theory some, some on how to do it. Are really some people are really adamant that they want to wear it. My wife really likes to wear a mask. Mm. Um, I don't really... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not really in big groups of people anyway. And obviously yeah. my work at the moment doesn't really exist. It's yeah. sort of stopped. Yeah, there's been no work for a month and normally when I'm working, I'm in a group of 10 or so people in close proximity. So that's a big no, no right now. Um, and, but, but those restrictions are being lifted, I believe sort of in, in the next couple of days. So yeah, uh, next week, I think I've got a couple of jobs on, which I'm pretty excited about. So I never thought I'd be so excited about going back to work, even though it's in a very different environment. I've got normally about a quarter of the crew that I would normally have on a job and uh, the whole team, there's, there's only four or five people allowed and we've got to maintain that sort of social distancing. And mm, wow. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if, for the people that don't know, you are a professional photographer. And, um, you know, when I was in school, I remember sitting with the, uh, who, who are the people that help you, you know, figure out what, what you want to be in life, you know? Um, you know, you know the, the people that sit down, they say, well, these are the list of jobs that you can do oh, in the future. Yeah, I'm trying to think too. You know, a counselor or something. You know, you sit down with the counselor and they say, "Oh, these these are the list of jobs." And I remember distinctly looking through the list of jobs yeah. that I could possibly do in life, and there was a massive list. You know, it just kept going and going, but nowhere in there did it say, you know, uh, photographer for supermodels. You know, I didn't <laughs> see that in the list, mate. How did you? How did I you did, end up I becoming did, that? I, I never saw that either. I think if I had have seen that, I might have like looked more into it. But look, at the time, I was sort of like, um, you know, look, I, I left school in year 10. I got offered a scholarship to the AIS. Uh, I was only 16 years old and I had sort of like, swimming was my life. That's all I cared about. I didn't really care about anything. I was really not that great at school. Um, I was training, you know, by the time I was 16, I was training twice a day. So it was... You know, school for me, I, I fell asleep in school most days, you know. I was, yeah. like, trying to get ready for the afternoon. Anyway, look, I got a scholarship to the AOS in Canberra, which was a really big deal at the time. And, uh, and you were a backstroker back then, right? Yep, yep, yeah. 120 backstroker. So, mm. um, you know, I was really just an age group swimmer, and I'd been offered that scholarship to go down there. And at the time, the AOS in Canberra was... Uh, that was where you wanted to go. That was mm. where all the top guys, that was where probably 80% of the national team trained and lived mm. together. Um, yeah. So that was somewhere that, that, that was like it really. That was like, you know, that was everything. If you wanted to swim, you wanted to go to the AIS. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess I was just around that time when the AIS was at its, its sort of peak power. Was that like, what year was that? It was like 80 something, 86 or something? Um, Yep, 86. 86, 86 yeah. when I got my scholarship down there. And I was probably ranked maybe, I might have been ranked uh, 10th, 10th or 12th in the country open. So yeah. I was, you know, I was like four or five seconds off what the guys were doing in, at an open level. But oh, wow. um, I moved down there and I got all of a sudden, I was put into a lane and I was training with a guy called David Orbell, mm. who at the time was the Australian uh, 200 backstroke champion for open. And um, so here I am all of a sudden, I'm training with the number one guy in the country yeah. for my event. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always trained pretty hard. So when I got down there, it wasn't like I was being left for dead from the start. You know, I was pretty much keeping up with those guys. And, you know, as the months went on, I sort of started to believe that I could actually beat these guys, you know. So for me, being in that environment with the guys that were the best in the country at what I did, what events I did, for me was a huge plus because, um, you know, after a while, not long, after a few months, I started beating these guys in training. You know, all of a sudden you start beating someone in training, you start believing that you can beat them in a race, which yeah. is what I did. I went, I think, from being, I think, ranked, like I said, 10 or so in the country at an open level. Um, I went, like, within the space of about eight months, I, I was, like, in the top couple, one yeah. or two. Wow. Wow. And back, back in the 80s, too, you know, the, the training back philosophies. The <laughs> <laughs> philosophies were different, mate. You know, like, it was when you trained, you, tra you did some work, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, I... 
it, look, you look back on everything, I guess, and think, should imagine if I had done things differently. I look at the way the guys train right now. It's just so different. So different, yeah. It really, I mean, we were, we were all about the Ks. Yeah. The head coach of the AS when I was there, Bill Sweetenham, you know, he was the masochist of coaches. It was like, you've got to hurt yourself or you're gonna, not going to do any good. It was like that sort of, they were the ways that you thought the more miles, the harder you went. I mean, some of the sessions are, obviously I've got a, a 17 year old son now who swims and uh, some of the sessions I tell him that we did, he can't yeah, believe it. He can't believe it. Yeah. It's like, like an open water swimmer, a 10 K swimmer, not, not a hundred or 200 meter swimmer. Yeah. Yeah. Just massive amounts of work. Hey, now was Bill your direct coach? Who was your direct coach? Uh, well, we sort of, you know, there, there were seven or eight coaches on deck back then, you know? So, oh, right. yeah, there was, I, I know that I worked closely with a, a lot with a guy called Bernie Mulroy from Western Australia. Bernie, um, yeah. Bernie was there. I mean, like, you know, there was a whole bunch of coaches there. Bill, I guess, sort of oversaw everything. They all worked pretty closely. The coaches sort of tended to spread them, spread themselves out over the whole group. So, and that was a good thing, you know, because you never really knew who you were going to have. You never really had the same coach standing over you every day. It was it, they mixed it up a bit and stuff. So, you know, you know, some days we would have different coaches and that, and I think that was probably a good thing. Yeah, and so pretty quickly, you, you you like you said, you become one of the best backstrokers in the country. So, how did you end up on the Olympic team in '88? Um, well, it was God. It was um, that whole couple of years, '86 to '88, was really just a blur. I think I made my first national team when I, in '87, which was the Panpacks in Brisbane, and you know, back then it wasn't really, the national team was picked a little bit differently to the way it is now. It was, um, I think now it's, it's very tough to make a national team with that, with, with, with having to have a time in the top 10 in the world from the previous year. I think back then it was like, if you got one or two at the trials, um, you pretty much got a spot on the team. So, you know, they would take guys that obviously weren't ready for international competition of the mindset that they would go and compete at these meets and get experience. Mm. And I think that, that's a great thing. I'm not a great fan of the way it is set up. I mean, I think that there's been plenty of swimmers, especially on the Australian national team, that have gone to meets and they might have been ranked in the top, out of the top 20. But what about the guy who's, who's, who is like that that's going to rock up to the Olympics and pull out the swim of his life yeah. and win? Yeah. I mean, those guys aren't going to get given the opportunity anymore. So yeah. uh, I understand one side of it, but the other side of it, I think that, you know, there's something to be said about... Uh, international experience yeah breaking them in a little bit of experience yeah absolutely yeah for sure no, that was good and so then you end up making this australian team in 88 that was the first that was the first real memory i have of watching an olympic games you know 88 olympics like i remember 84 you know i, I remember watching rowdy Gaines, but i was a young kid you know i was 10 years old but like 88 i was i was more I think I was more in the, you know, 13, I was about 13 at that stage. Yeah. So that's the kind of first memory I have. (laughs) But you were rooming with uh, the legend Duncan Armstrong, right? Yeah, I was. I mean, I got to, uh, I got to know Duncan pretty well in that sort of year and a half, two years leading into the Olympics. Um, You know, we used to, the AIS, Bill Sweetenham and Laurie Lawrence, those guys were in touch a lot. Obviously, they were both on the national team as coaches as well. So, you know, we would go on um, training camps up there to Queensland a fair bit. So, 
I got to see uh, I got to see Duncan training a lot, um, and then obviously uh, you know being roomed up with him. Uh, my roommates in the '88 Olympics were, were Duncan and uh, Andrew Bailden and also John Seaven. Oh yeah. So I got thrust into a room, and and I was still relatively uh, young and really inexperienced when I went to the '88 Olympics. I think that it was. Uh, you know, I was still a fair way off um, the top guys back then. You know, I think I went sort of ranked into the whole Olympics, probably in just outside of the top 20, and I might have finished a little bit behind that. Yeah. But um, it was a great experience to have a guy like Duncan that I knew so well and, um, you know, just go about his business, about, you know, how he normally did, and then to, to rock up to the Olympics and just, you know, the, you know what the, the, the pressure cooker environment that that is. Yeah. Um, and just to see how <clears throat> he went about that, and I, I remember almost now vividly and more so in hindsight about actually how he went about stuff and how he just was just so calm and so relaxed and so composed. And I think I think about the fact that he really almost went about the whole thing like he knew he was going to win. You oh, know, he really? got heats and everyone was like, wow, you've made the final of the Olympics. And the 88 Olympics was was not a great Olympics for Australia. Um, you know, we didn't really do that well. A, a lot of the swimmers swam outside their PBs and things like that. So, um, but but Duncan just it was weird. You know, it was like he he expected to be there. And uh, I remember chatting with him just before we went up for the final session that night. And it was he was in a trance. It was like he knew he knew something that no one else knew, you know, really. He so would, you could pick up on that even before the race. Huh? I, I remember it. I remember it clearly thinking, wow, I'd expected him to be a little bit more nervous than what he might've been, mm. but he was just so calm and so relaxed. And he just had this like sole focus, it seemed. And, uh, you know, even just watching him in that race, you know, and watching him behind the blocks before, I mean, that was a pretty crazy 200 freestyle field. I mean, if you were yeah. ever going to be intimidated by your competition, especially as an unknown from Australia, um, that might have been it. But just the way, the, the whole way he swam that race as well was, uh, he just had no regard for anyone. He just knew what he wanted to do. And yeah, I mean, the rest is history really. And to break the world record like he did, but it was... Uh, it was just the confidence that he sort of oozed that whole few days leading into the Olympics um, and that race in particular that uh, I guess sort of stayed with me and it was great to be a part of and great to be around him. And, you know, even though I didn't have the success that I necessarily wanted to, it was great to share in a teammate who I'd become pretty close with to share in on his success. And uh, like I said, Australia hadn't, didn't, didn't have such a great Olympics in Seoul. So... I think the whole the whole team as an overall might have won three gold medals, and that's across every single sport. You know, so yeah. it was a big deal. Mate, what was Laurie Lawrence like back then? Because he's he's calmed down a bit, you know. But back then, he he came across as like he was he was intense, mate. And was. Uh, he, was, you know, he, was, he was. Was he always like that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He was. I mean, I don't know what you call it madness or obsession or just you know, just the passion he had for the sport. And, um, but he was, uh, he was pretty crazy. It was pretty, you know, I mean, most of the time you'd see him and the way he'd act and you couldn't help but laugh around him. And, but he was just off in his own little world. And, you know, it was like him and Duncan had this sort of connection that, you know, he, he knew, he, he as well knew. 
I mean, maybe he's the reason why Duncan felt that confidence that he did because I felt like Laurie, Laurie felt like something special was coming as well. I mean, you've only got to look back on those tapes of how he was coming, carrying on before the race and, yeah. and then screaming out. I don't know whether you, you, you see that on those old things, but Laurie was literally screaming out the top of his voice to bring out the animal. Yeah. to take the chains off. He's yelling at the guys in the 200 final from the stands <laughs> at Duncan, bring out the animal, take the chain, unleash the chains. It was like <laughs> comical. But it's it was, like old school sports psychology, isn't it? Like it's before we understood sports psychology too much, really, isn't it? Well, I mean, look, it was... Uh, you know, he always put Duncan on a bit of a pedestal, the way he trained so hard, the way he never missed a session. I mean, it's sort of no. like, you know, if you, if you think about those stories, when Laurie, Laurie would always sit down afterwards and tell everyone about how Duncan never missed a session. Was I think, I think he was late to one session. I might have actually been training with them when he did do that because mm. I remember uh, Duncan was like five minutes late to a, to a session, slept in, was five minutes late rocking up on the pool deck Laurie didn't say anything. He went about his business normally at the end of the training. He told Duncan, leave your car in the car park. You're going to run home. And no. Duncan at the time lived about 30Ks from the pool. 30K. So he made him run 30Ks home because he was wow. five minutes late. And that was the only time I ever heard of Duncan either, even, even missing a session or being late to a session. I think in maybe two years leading mm. into 88. Mm. So... Wow. There was a real obsessive sort of culture about those sorts of things. You know, you could never be late. You could never miss a session. You could never miss a, la a lap in a set. You could never fall behind. It was like that was the whole um, the way they went about stuff, you know. Yeah, wow. And, uh, and you didn't really question the coach either. You just, you just you did I think, what they I, said, eh? Oh, mate, mate, when you've got that guy – and. Laurie was one of those coaches that ran up and down the pool deck every lap. I mean, oh. that guy, that guy walked, that guy must have walked 10, 15 Ks a session. Really? Oh, wow. It was up and back, up and back. I mean, you don't see that that often, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I know that there's that new coach, Dean Boxall from Queensland. I, I see a little bit of Laurie in him. Yeah. It's that real obsessive, like, you know, and, and, you know, I guess that works for some swimmers. Yeah. I don't yeah. necessarily think it works for everyone. Um, you know, I know Laurie worked everyone in that, in that Chandler pool that hard. And I think that Duncan and guys like John Seed and those guys benefited from it. But, you know, I knew of other guys in that squad that, that might've had as much potential that might've been as good as those guys, but, never really came to fruition and whether or not that was because the, the work that they were given yeah. um, might have detracted from how they went. I mean, it was hard. It was, it was not just the physical toll. It was the mental toll. Yeah. You know, I mean, they used to have that, uh, that like they, I think they called it death camp or hell week or something. And we went up for that every year and they held that at the crack at Corumban. And I remember like the sessions, mate, they were like, there was never under a 10 K session. And some wow. of the sets that we were doing, and it didn't matter if there was a 10K time trial. If you were a butterfly, and I remember the butterflies, mate, they had to do a 10K time trial. 10K I butterfly. Had, I, I had to do a backstroke. Yeah, I remember Peter G. Um, Jesus. It was a great 200 flyer. It was a 157 low, 200 butterfly. 
I remember seeing him um, him doing a 10K time trial, like fly. Like I'd never seen him. Wow. Wow. You know? de- he definitely got a shoulder injury out of that. <laughs> oh, look, I mean, you know, injuries were... When, when we were at the AIS back then, mate, it was like uh, most nights I would remember coming in from the pool into the dining hall that they had back there and there was a big ice machine that was mainly used by the weightlifters and stuff. But, mate, I can guarantee you every night you'd be sitting with all the swimmers at the, at the dining table every night and there wasn't a swimmer who didn't have four or five ice packs mm. on his shoulders mm. because of the you know, the pain and, and guys were, a lot of guys were getting injured and stuff. So it was, uh, yeah. it was, it was, it was pretty common, you know? Yeah. Injuries. Oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Recovery wasn't a big part of swimming back then. Took a uh, while no, for that to come mate, in. Mate, back then at the IS, it was like, here's your, here's your Voltarens and don't forget to ice your, ice your shoulders after every session. <laughs> I mean, mate, yeah. we used to pop those Voltarens like they were like just lollies. Really? Yeah. Now, now on the weekends they let you loose. You guys, you guys, you guys get out and I, get on it. Oh yeah, we were crazy. I mean, I, I've, I was 16 years old when I went down there, mate. I, I got thrust into an environment with Neil Brooks, uh, Greg Vasala. Oh wow. 16 years old, mate. Those guys were notorious <laughs> for their partying and their antics, you know. So. Oh yeah. Um, mate, I couldn't even I couldn't even bring up things on this podcast that I saw and was around that sort of like <laughs> opened up a whole different world to me. Um, you know, cause the AIS back then it was, uh, it was, it was pretty crazy. You know, it was like yeah. train hard, party hard, although, you know, you know, that, 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 that meant Saturday night and, yeah. you know, most of the swimmers were so fit back then, you know, it was like, you know, you could have one or two beers and, you know, you'd sort of carry on like your average guy who might've had 20. Yeah. 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 For sure. And how long no. did you end up staying there after after the eighty eight Olympics? How long did you stay at the AS? I stayed at the 80, uh, 86, 87, 88. Okay. I think I might have spent half of eighty nine there. Okay. Um, but that's when the, that the whole program started to disband a bit, you know, because we hadn't at the time we were getting a lot of funding from the government um, down there, and I think that uh, you know it was such a large proportion of the AS at the 88 games didn't really sum up to expectation Yeah, that in Australian sport, when that's the case, a lot of the funding gets dropped from the sport, you know? So it was a very different looking program, I think in the years following the 88 games. And that was just really down to the fact that we didn't have the success that they thought that we might've. And, and, and the government, like I said, spent a lot of money on the swim program down there in those years leading into that 88 Olympics. And uh, I mean, we traveled the year. We were, we were away four or five months of the year. Really? Competing around the world. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. The trips we had, we, we, we were overseas every other month, you know, mm. whether we were in Europe competing at, the, at, the, at the, 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 the different various sort of speedo cups and things. And the Canada, the Can- big Canada Cup, that was a meet that every year I went to for four years. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was it was you know a, a, a lengthy part of the season was spent travelling and overseas, and much more so than even nowadays. I think you know I don't really mm. think there are trips that there used to be in swimming. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so then did you end up going to the '92 trials? Went to the '92 trials. Um, had an absolute shocker. Really. Uh, 
Yeah, swam. Well, it, it's funny because two weeks earlier, I'd, I'd, I'd won the American Open in Minnesota and had swum a 201, 200 back, which at the time was a second PB. And um, I had an amazing meet. Came back to Australia. I was a shoe-in for Barcelona. I was ranked in the top 10 in the world for 200 backstroke. I was just off the top guys and mm. came back to Australia and um, whether or not it was, it, I'd picked up something like a bug or something um, when I was in Minnesota. We had been competing there and it, it was the middle of winter in the US. So we basically had to trudge through snow and to get to the pool, which was an amazing thing in itself. You know, yeah. came back to Australia and I had literally two weeks to get, you know, to get before trials and for the Barcelona trials. And that was at the AOS in Canberra. And I went to that meet. Um, and that 10 days before it, I, I just, after having a bit of a cold, bit of a virus, lost a lot of my strength and found yeah. in training, I was just like going backwards, which was very worrying for, uh, for not just me, but my coach. And uh, I knew that going into that meet, I was, I was well off my best, you know, and it was, uh, so I think that I swam the heats of the 200 backstroke and I might have swum 204, 205, 206, mm. I can't even remember. Yeah. Anyway, five or six seconds slower than what I swam two weeks earlier in the US. Oh, uh, wow. And that wasn't even good enough to get me into the final. Oh, wow. So I knew that I was done. Wow. So I didn't even swim the, the, the 100 back. Oh, really? I literally, mate, I literally... After that 200 back, I literally jumped the next morning. I jumped on a bus from Canberra. I left the team and I went home. Oh, wow. I was like, I'm not going to sit here and torture myself over a five-day competition. I'm, like, yeah. I'm not at my best. I'm not 100%. I was, uh, I was sort of, sort of shell-shocked by the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. It was I... Um, was not expected. It was just out of the blue. It was like I just went to this meet and, and you, you, you can have those meets. I just picked the wrong meet to have it, you know. Yep. Um, yeah, like I said, I, I was like, uh, I, was, I, was, I, was a shoe, I was meant to be a shoe-in for that team. I was, I was even on a TV commercial advertising the 92 Olympics at that oh, wow. time. Oh, Wow. Jeez. You know, so, yeah. so, so, so making the team was like a formality and it was, uh, so, you know, at that, at that time I was like, 92 was always going to be my final Olympics. So I thought, you know, I, I'm 23 years old. It was like, this is it. I'm, 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 I'm right up there in the world rankings. I, I thought I really had a shot, you know, at maybe a medal. Um, so for that to happen um, was, was, a, a disaster for me, my family, for everything, you know, and it was uh, just a part of my life which is a bit blurry, a bit hazy. It was, just, you know, not the way I'd sort of plan on finish, you know, finishing a 15, 16, 17-year career of, you know, everything that I'd done my whole life was around swimming and then all of a sudden this had happened and, and I didn't know what to do. Was that it? Was that the last swim you ever did? That's it. Wow. It was the last swim I ever did. Oh wow! And and it was funny because uh, at that time, I never got a phone call. I never got anything. I didn't get one person, obviously, except my coach at the time, Paul Harbin, who was obviously pretty worried about me. But I never got a single phone call. I never got a single message from anyone saying, "Are you okay?" 
Is everything all right? Wow. Like, isn't no it funny? It's it funny, was, isn't it? It was, it, was, it was funny and I sort of like, uh, I resented Australian swimming for many, many years afterwards. Um, and obviously I had nothing to do with swimming after that. Um, and I think about a week later after, like it was, I was home at the time I had a girlfriend who was Dutch. And that's sort of how I fell into the fashion world a little bit, you know, because uh, she was a model and she was going home to Holland. And I was like, well, there's no point in me being here. I don't want to be in Australia. I don't want to be, you know, like I said, I was on a TV commercial advertising the 92 Olympics. My mum and dad had tickets and bought tickets for like the events that I was meant to be in. Wow. Oh, mate, it was, it was, it was crazy. Mm. Um, but like I said, I was a long way ahead of my competitors in Australia at that time. There was one guy, Toby Heenan, that was sort of like, him and I were pretty neck and neck and, you know, we would have hoped, you know, it was obvious that probably both of us might have made that team, but uh, for me, it didn't work out the way it was. But, uh, yeah, like I said, it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever had to deal with in my life. But uh, I was at that point, you know, and after a week, I'd sort of gotten over it and then I had this opportunity where, hey, I'm, I'm, I had a girlfriend that was, she was going back to Europe. I'm like, you know what, I'm coming with you. I'm leaving Australia. Mm. A week after the Olympic trials, mate. I bought myself a one-way ticket to Europe, to Holland, to Europe. Wow. Mention of coming back. Oh, wow. Jeez. That was it, hey? That was it. Oh, man. That's awesome. That's awesome, though. I love that. I love that part of the story. It's like, I'm, I'm going that way. I ain't coming back. You know, the thing is, is that I was, I, that, that last year or so of me swimming, I was already starting to think about, I was getting the taste about what I wanted to do after swimming. Yeah, you know, it's it's those years of training, uh, the, the three or four years I had at the AS, man, that, that, that that killed me. Yeah, that pounding. And it was, uh, you know, I was twenty, twenty two, twenty one, twenty two. Your buddies that are outside of the swimming world, they're all starting to make money. They're buying a nice car. You're hearing about them getting this job, and they're doing this, and they're partying like this, and they're doing this, and so all these little distractions that I hadn't really, I'd sort of ignored up until that part of my life. Something that I started to think about in that final year of swimming and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm going to go to the Olympics 92 Barcelona, I'm going to have a great meet. And then after I'm going to, I'm going to farewell it anyway. So yeah. when all this happened, it was like, okay, this all came around sooner than I thought it would. Yeah. So, um, so here I am, I'm in Europe, mate. I've, I've, I've landed in Europe, but I don't know anyone there. I'm, I'm in a country where, I mean, luckily the Dutch speak um, English. Otherwise, I would have been really stuffed. But, uh, and it was there that I met a couple of young photographers that were friends with my girlfriend at the time. And, um, you know, I saw what they were doing. And I was watching and they invited me to come to the studio. And I was like, I'd never even been to a photo. I didn't know what a photo studio was. So you hadn't picked up a camera at that stage? Oh, look, I picked up a camera just like everyone else. You know, I just always had a little bit of a keen, but it was a hobby. It was never something that I even thought of as uh, mm. I never something I even thought of as doing as, as a job. Really? Wow. Well, I, 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 I sacrificed everything for swimming. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, all, all my schooling years. Yep. Uh, I, I literally finished the sport with nothing. Yeah. I didn't even get a handshake from Australian swimming. Yeah. I literally, and like I said, you know, I sort of really, I didn't, 
when I say I resented them, I just, whenever I thought about swimming and Australian swimming, I, I didn't have a good taste in my mouth. Um, yeah. So it was funny that years and years later, I'm talking about many years later, um, when my youngest, when my son started swimming and I, and I started to, to get back into the swimming world a little bit. Um, and I was approached, I think, or I'd read something on a Facebook notice once that was written by Daniel Kowalski. Yeah. And it was the first time ever I'd, I'd seen something written about um, where they talked about swimmers' mental health and mm. what happens to swimmers after swimming. Yeah. I remember reading this and I must have read it 10 times because I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, here's finally someone who has actually hit the nail on the head in terms of, um, you know, what happens to swimmers when they stop swimming? Yeah. Because it was like a, a door had just been shut on me. And it was like, I was like, I was banished. Like I had some sort of disease, like the plague. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I was like, oh, I done something wrong. Like mm. there was never like, you know, how are you going? What are you mm. doing with your life after swimming? It was yeah. like, how can we help you? You know? Yeah. And so, so I read this thing in Facebook that Dan Kowalski had written and I wrote him an email and I, I'd had no contact with anyone swimming at that point for 10 years. And I, and I messaged Dan. I said, mate, thank you. I've mm. been waiting someone in Australia swimming to actually put something down on paper or write something about this because it's a real issue. And yeah. I'd heard stories of swimmers that I swam with that were, were alcoholics, that were bums, that had like, you know, they had no jobs. It was like, hang on, I'm like, well, hang on, where's the, where, why isn't there someone looking after that mm. side of the sport? You've got like, in things like the NRL and rugby and football, there, there are people that are actually have specific jobs to look after swimmers to make sure that they make that adaptation yeah. from sport to regular life. And yep. you know, as well as I, that's the hardest thing for athletes to do because um, it's such a different world and, and so much has been sacrificed uh, to be the best at your sport that when you finish that, and you go out into the regular world like your average person, it's a big shock to the system. You know? mm, mm. Nothing's done for you. You've got to do it all yourself. And uh, it's, it's funny, you know, because uh, I have now, because I've spoken out about this a little bit and I've, I've, I've been in contact with people and now I actually, there's obviously things in place. I mean, things are obviously better now because I know that Australian swimming uh, they take it a lot more seriously now, which is a great thing, you know. But I, I have had, you know, even some athletes on the current Australian team have reached out to me or they've asked me, like, how did you make the transition from being a swimmer to a job? Um, and it's a really interesting thing because it's glad that that's now talked about because I find it is such an important thing. I think you've got to really look after the swimmers because not everyone's a Kate Campbell. Not yeah. everyone's going to win a gold medal like Duncan Armstrong and get a, broad, a, a job as a, as a television host on TV, you know. Yeah. You know, pretty much if you don't win a gold medal, you're going to be forgotten about. Well, listen, mate, I'm telling you, the story that you're telling, 
I can relate to big time. I, um, we're not far off in this. And, and I was probably, you know, you, you finished in 92. I finished in 2006. Yeah. Uh, stories are very similar and we had very similar experiences. There wasn't, there wasn't anything. I didn't hear from anybody. It was just like silence. It's like, wow, this is incredible. Now I have heard some things have changed and things have evolved, which is, which is better, but you're right. We don't prepare the swimmers. It's, it's almost like we train them, we use them, we abuse them. And then yeah. when they're done, bring in the next lot. Let's go again. You know, it's, you know, and, and you know, it's, it's such a tough demanding sport. Um, and the financial rewards, they're not there for you're a guy who's, you know, unless you're winning these World Cup meets and you're like, you know, I read about such and such made a hundred grand at the World Cup meets and yeah. blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, there's so many swimmers there that are still struggling, that are still living at home. Parents have got to fund it. Um, the grants from the government are, are tiny. Yeah. Um, you know, Swimmers have got a great profile thanks to the ones that the top people, thank God that they're there because, um, you know, swimming obviously, as you know, uh, had its sort of image tarnished pretty heavily here after what happened in London. So that was, um, you know, obviously then once again, you're behind the eight ball, but I think that it's, uh, it, it's, it's still really financially, financially tough for swimmers to make a living. Um, I think they, you know, they, they do struggle to uh, to adapt, I find, you know, and, and like I said, it, it's, I always think about the swimmers that are the ones that finished third, fourth, fifth at yep. an Olympic trials. Yeah. They're the ones that I always think about. Yeah. Because they're the ones that have made the same sacrifices, but they didn't quite get to achieve their goals. They didn't, get the name they didn't get the notoriety they didn't you know so so what happens to them yeah you know i think that i think that you know there are things in place i i, I still don't think it's anywhere near enough i think that you know um there's still a lot there that needs to be done but there's a lot oh, more absolutely. than what, there's a oh, lot absolutely. more than, you know when i when i swam for example you know so yeah and and that's why um i've always stressed to my son and and the importance of having something besides swimming. Yeah. Because when I swam, there was nothing. It was swimming and that was it, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, I was four years after you, mate. I, I missed the team in 96. And the reason why I moved to America was because there was nothing. It was, there was it. It was like, you know, don't, I, I actually qualified for the Olympics. I finished six at the Olympic trials in the hundred freestyle, which was within the qualification standards. They said in the, in the standards, they said, we'll take the top six, consider the top six. So yeah. I finished six. And then I, uh, I missed the 50 freestyle. Darren Lang touched me out by three one hundreds and I finished third. And so Don Talbot decided not to take me well, because yeah. he didn't want to take top six. My, my career's over, you know, yeah. like I don't get a shot at the Olympic games. So, so I'm, I'm left with nothing. So then I, I decide on my own to go to America and then I get criticism from the Australian coaches. Like, oh, how, how could you do that? Well, you, you couldn't care less about me. I'm, I'm done in your mind. So, so I went yeah. to America and started a career and, and, and fought. I was the same as you. I said to my dad, buy me a plane ticket. I'm, I'm going, you know, this is it. I'm out of here. I've got nothing here. I've got to go. Right. And that's, that's why, I mean, it's like, it's, it, it is, it is so important that at that sort of level, you know, like my son is 17, you know, unfortunately he's missed his last year as an age group swimmer here. So, 
he goes straight away now into the open category. Yeah. He goes from being ranked number one or two or three in Australia as an age group similar to, you know, being ranked 20, 25th in the 100, 200 free, blah, 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 whatever it might be. Yeah. And that's the age group where the kids need to be looked after because that's when most give up. Yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll try it for a year or two, but you know, when you're used to like making finals at nationals and all of a sudden, you know, for the next three or four years, you don't make a final at either a state level or a national level. It can be a bit disheartening. And I know for a fact there's, there's kids. I, I was just on the phone with a buddy of mine that I used to swim with last night. And he was telling me running off a list of names of kids that have just re- have given up. Yeah. yeah. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow. Tons of talent just drop off there, there, because they're just like you said, they're not, they're not in the top ten, so they're like, well, I got nothing, I can't, I, I can't pay my bills, I got to go earn some money, what am I going to do? And 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 you know the thing is, it's the peer pressures that are outside of the sport. Yeah. What their friends are doing as well, it's a really big thing, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm really fortunate, I guess, that um, I saw that, and my son got into the U.S. system a couple of years ago, so. Um, people were made aware of him and his intentions to hopefully want to come to the US. Um, and then thankfully he'll be starting um, at Florida next year, Mate. which is a great thing for him because yeah. that means at the age of 17, 18 years, he knows he's going to be swimming for the next four or five years. Yeah. And regardless of whether or not he makes an Australian national team, he's going to get a degree out of swimming. So he's going to have something in the end of it, which is um, a really important thing. I think if you can come out of the sport and go, you know what, I got this out of the sport of swimming, everything that I sacrificed, everything I gave up, my family, my friends, everything, you know, here I am, I've got a piece of paper, I've got a degree. And whether or not you've made an Australian team, it doesn't matter. It's like, um, and the other thing on side of that is too, is at the age of 23, when they say male swimmers peak, Mm. physical strength 23 24 25 i mean god guys are even swimming much later than that these days but i think if you're in that position where you can actually be swimming that late it's only going to be then that you're going to see how good you really are you know for sure all the kids who could have been i mean the amount of olympic gold medalists that might have slipped through the cracks because they didn't think that way or they never were given that opportunity or because let's face it like you know Age group swimming is what it is. And I live in New South Wales, which is, you know, definitely not what it used to be. It's not like the Queensland system, which seems to be so much better in the fact that it, um, there's so much more going on Yeah. for the kids, for the swimmers. They've, uh, it's, it's such a bigger deal, you yeah. know, and the swimmers are doing so well. So, well, for all the American listeners and viewers right now, keep an eye out for Tyson Upton because he's, <laughs> he's signed on to come to swim at Florida. And, uh, mate, it's a great program. Uh, I battled Florida for many years myself, so I, I know all about it. And uh, I know Anthony Nesty very well. He's, an, he's a phenomenal coach, runs a brilliant program, and they've got some talent coming in, mate. He's, he's going to be around really good athletes. He's going to be yeah. pushed for four years. Um, yeah he's going to grow, but he's going to, like you said, he's going to get a degree at the end of this thing. Yeah. And uh, no matter how he comes out of it, he's going to come out with a piece of paper that that's going to help him move on to the next part of his life, you know, but but there's so many other things that go with it too. So it's just a, it's a phenomenal choice. I'm super happy for him, mate. He's a, he's a great kid raised a good one, you know? So 
I'm excited to kind of watch him, watch his journey over the next four years. Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's um, I'm excited for him. I mean, it's sort of uh, yeah. He's going to be going into their program in January, so he's going to get a few months in there before the college starts, I guess, in August. So um, it'll be great to see him go into a program like that. I know they've got some pretty amazing swimmers there. They've had a really successful. 2020 so um yeah he's been watching that um you know he had a pretty good year himself but uh obviously everything's been cut short like it has for most of the swimmers it's the biggest disappointment about this there were all these swimmers that were just like headed upwards 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 and i was really excited to see actually what people were going to do you could even say that about the aussie kyle Chalmers. i mean i've watched that guy race the last couple of meets he's done i mean he was he's a beast I can't get over. Like I just watched him swim like yeah. sort of fly at the New South Wales State. Yeah, he's Five a beast. Ago, I mean, he's just. Yeah, I've never seen him look like he's looking at the moment. So he yeah. must. He must be gutted that he yeah. the been postponed. But in saying that, you know, that'll give him another year to catch up to Dressel. Yeah, well, he's not far off, but you know, yeah, I think those two are going to have some some battles. It's kind of yeah, oh, absolutely. He, he's a, he's a swimmer, that kid, man. I got to watch him a little bit in the ISL, the International Swim League this year, and I kind of watched him closely. And he's he's good, mate. He is really good. I mean, he's obviously an Olympic champion, so he's already he's already brilliant. But mate, you know, dress people people put Caleb on a, on a pedestal, and Caleb is a phenomenal athlete. And your your son's going to have a great time training with him, by the way. But um. But you know, Kyle is 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 right there, mate, and it's going to be some. It's going to be a cracking race that hundred freestyle, especially. You know, yeah. can't wait for it. Especially now we've got to wait another year. Just yeah. Oh well, you know, give them time. So, but like, Miss, mate, I'm I'm so interested in this whole concept of you just not having anything after swimming and then becoming this legendary photographer around the world, mate. You know, with uh with you know who who photographs supermodels i just don't know how you even get into it what happens how'd you do it well it's funny because um <clears throat> i've got to retrace my steps here a little bit and go back to where i fact the fact that i said that all these doors and swimming had shut on me and i had been left with pretty much nothing i'd sacrificed my education and everything but then as the years have gone by <clears throat> i've i've taught i've learned that the biggest thing I got from swimming was the discipline, was the, <clears throat> yeah. was the, you know, that, that was, I think what a lot of these swimmers, if they, if they, if they can learn to understand that um, what it takes to be good at swimming, mm. if you can apply that to a job environment, mm. you're going to be successful no matter what you do. Mm. Great. Because yeah. you've learned the discipline. I mean, you know, as well as I, how hard it is. It's a tough sport, the training, everything that goes with it. And uh, so I look back on, you know, the fact that I was in Holland. I had no education. I, I just finished a career of God knows how many years. And I literally was, um, the whole world just sort of was opening up to me. And then I straight away met these guys, these photographers in a photo studio in Amsterdam which is where I lived for that first year and a half. Um, And I thought, wow, this is an amazing job. And I I spent time, more and more time there, and I got to meet these guys, and they would tell me about how they travelled all over the world, and they did this, and they did that. And Mm. uh, it was something that um, just began to become more and more appealing to me, you know. So 
I sort of straight away, the camera that I had, I sort of upgraded that and I started then just basically taking pictures. I had a girlfriend at the time who was a model. So, you know, I went into her modeling agency in Amsterdam and I introduced myself and basically told them that I was much better than what I really was. <laughs> I basically told them, I basically bullshitted to them and said that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a photographer. I'm, I'm, I am a photographer, even though I wasn't really a photographer. Oh, wow. And I think that first couple of times I, I had to take a small portfolio of my work and at that time, my girlfriend had been taking pictures as well. She was coming to the end of her modelling career. She was looking at ways to stay in the industry. She started taking pictures herself. She was giving me some of her photos that she'd taken and I was going and saying, hey, putting that in my folio to make me look a little bit better. <laughs> so, and I hadn't really done the photography training. I'd sort of like, you know, I was... I was just flying by the seat of my pants, mate. I, I was saying, yeah, I'm a photographer, but I wasn't really. I was learning. I was, I was being introduced to her friends who were all models at the time and I would just go off and I would take photos and I would literally just shoot pictures every day. And I'd organised at the time what they call a test shoot, which is where you, you get a model and you get a hair and makeup artist and a stylist and you do like a, a photo shoot. And um, I sort of, I, I was doing these every day. I think um, I used to keep a little diary of how many I did. And I think um, in that first couple of years, I was, I was averaging like four or 500 of these a year. Oh, wow. So I was doing like one or two of them sometimes a day. And it was there that I, <clears throat> I, I guess, you know, you hear about photographers being self-taught, about people that, that, that self-teach. Really? And I self-taught myself totally. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, it's different to these days, mate. These days with digital, yeah. anyone can stuff up a picture and you put it in your computer and you can fix it. Mm. I was, this was film, this was the film days. Mm. So I had to take a Polaroid and then I had to roll a 120 film, which is the big old film, into an older camera. And then I would have to go off at the end of the day to the film lab um, and I would have to get that developed. So... I found myself constantly talking to the guys at the film labs and asking them about little things this guy might do or this guy might do. And I was going to a film lab in Amsterdam, which is where all the top photographers in Amsterdam went. Mm. I was just chatting guys and picking their brains apart, mate. I was like just, I was 18 hours a day working it, getting all the information. I was just a sponge for everything. And I look back at it now and it was like, that's what swimming taught me. That's what I get. That, that's the greatest thing that I got out of swimming. Yeah. And, and, and no one could tell me no. I, I didn't take no. No, I mean, being in the arts and the creative process is very different as to swimming because when you're swimming, you finish first on the wall. No one can say you're not the best. Mm. That's the difference. Whereas all of a sudden I'm in a job and I'm being judged on my pictures and the fashion industry is pretty cruel. Yeah. It's pretty ruthless. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, and I can't tell you, there must've been thousands of people that I'd take my book in there in the hope of maybe getting a commission job. And I, the amount of times people have just opened my portfolio and I could just say, tell that they just didn't like it. 
and they some would tell me in a nice way, I you know, you're not really right for us, or others would just go, mate, this is shit. You need to keep working and trying to figure it out. Oh wow, really? So, but you know, I never got down about it. I just mm. go back and I just keep doing it. And I remember coming back to Australia for the. I'd been in Europe, I think, for the, at that time around oh, three or four years. I I I'd been in Germany. I'd been in France. I, I mean, because that it's like a circus in that industry, you know. And I was traveling with my girlfriend, and we were, you know, obviously in Europe, you can just get around by train. So you know, I was living in Holland. We could get up to Germany in half a day, and I'd go up there, and I'd I'd go around to all the modeling agencies in Germany. I'd I'd be doing all these sort of test shoots and things, and so I still hadn't had a commission job, even though these modeling agencies were paying me money. Um, that was just basically enough to survive, you know. Oh, okay. So I was living hand to mouth for the first four or five years, and just trying to develop what I did, my craft, and trying to get. You know, I was always told, you know. You've got to have, uh, you've got to have like your own identity, you know, because yeah. at the time you're flicking through like lots of magazines and you're, like, yeah. you're looking like this, you're looking like that. So you're looking at your pictures and it's all over the shop a little bit. So basically what that does is it, you learn over time, you're trying to create your own identity. Mm. So if somebody were to see your photo, they'd be like, that's Simon Upton. Yeah. Now they would. Yeah. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I, the best guys in the world, I think you can look at them and they've got a stamp. Yeah. Right style um yeah and but did you have a talent as well was there a talent there honestly uh probably not mate if you look at the first pictures i ever took (laughs) and i mean you know like i said i mean look i think i think on one of my first ever commissioned jobs i'd been paid like a thousand bucks to do a shoot and i went to the lab that night after the job, the job had finished at seven o'clock. I went to the, to the lab to get the film processed and the guy from the lab came out and he's just shaking his head. I'm like, what's wrong? Mm. I'm looking at the pictures, mate, the proof sheets, what they used to call back then. Everything's black. None of the pictures were exposed. And this was one of my first ever commissioned jobs. Oh, fuck. So I had to go back to the client the next day and go, the lab stuffed up the film. Oh wow! More than more than happy to reshoot it for you at my cost. Mm. So, and I knew that the mistakes that I had made, I wouldn't make again. So I went back and did a great job on the second chance, and that never really happened ever again after that. You know, but yeah, yeah. I really, I, you know, like I said, I was self-taught. I learned along the way, and I think with something like photography, it's something that you get better and better at the more you do. I think that that's why there's so many great photographers that are in their 70s, 60s, and 70s. You know, guys are taking amazing pictures of that because you learn to have a better understanding of light and simple things like that, you know, but um, I was necessary. I was never, never really a, a creative person. Um, I don't really come from a creative family. I, I, there's no photographers in my family. And yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, my whole life had been sport. So mm. this was something that was very far removed, although I had very, very many similarities like I said, when I was swimming a lot, you know, we travelled at the AIS. We were away for four, five, six months a year. That was something that I loved to do. So all of a sudden I'm in a job where I'm travelling again and travelling um, has been a really big part of my life and uh, it's something that I right now struggle with being stuck in isolation because yeah. you can't go anywhere. The border's closed and that's just in Australia. So international travel I don't think is going to be right for quite some time. But... Um, 
Let me say this then, you know, when I first started coaching, it didn't matter what my credentials were as a swimmer. I still had to come in and establish credibility, you know, in, in the eyes of the top athletes. You know, if I wanted them to respect me, I had yeah. to establish some credibility. I had to establish respect. I couldn't just walk in and say, well, Brett's a great swimmer, so he's going to earn my respect immediately. There was yeah. still a, a period of time where like, you're on trial here, you got to earn it. So in terms of the eyes of the supermodel, how did you earn their trust to say that the guy that's behind the lens, I trust him? Look, I think that uh, as a photographer, especially as you're, you're working, it's like you, you're throwing yourself out there. It's like, you know, you're taking pictures for a magazine and a lot of the time that's seen globally, instantly. Yeah. So people start seeing your name, they start recognising your name, they start identifying with it and then it's... Uh, and then you get uh, a break. You get an opportunity that comes along and... Um, what was that for you? Which one was that? Uh, my big break came when I had returned from overseas. I was back in Australia for a little while and I still had, mate, daily, most doors were being closed on me. I was not getting given a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Um, very clicky business. Um, yeah. It's never more rife than, you know, who you know than what you know. Sure. The fashion business. So um, <clears throat> I went in and saw at the time a, an art director, a guy called Eric Matthews at Vogue magazine. And... He loved what I did. He was straight away, I'm going to give you a job. Oh. And I was like, wow. They were like the last person on the planet that I thought were going to give me a job. So mm. that, was, um, that was definitely my first big break was through a guy, Eric. And it, it only ever takes one person to believe in you. Yeah. If that one person's in a position where they can, you know, get you working for a magazine, in my case was... Uh, that's very reputable and everyone looks at Vogue magazine. And once I appeared in that, um, a lot of stuff started to follow. Who was the first, uh, who was the first big, uh, supermodel that you, that you kind of, uh, you know, connected with? Definitely Cindy Crawford. Really? How, how'd that come about? Um, I had been working for a magazine in Australia called Harper's Bazaar, which is <clears throat> the main competition to Vogue magazine, and they had commissioned me to do a shoot with her in New Zealand. Um, and then when you get that news, what are you, what are you, are you nervous? Are you, what are you thinking? I've never been nervous. About really? Working. No, never. Wow. And... But what, guess, what year was this? This would have been like, what, mid-90s? Mid I don't know, I don't know year, what year that was. I know they, Amiga, obviously, are the starting watches of the America's Cup. They'd flown her out because she's the face globally of Amiga watches. So this is a crazy story, mate. They'd flown her out from America to start the America's Cup on Auckland Harbour. And we got flown... Um, from Sydney to New Zealand the day before the shoot. We were photographing her in a studio. There was a lot of media. There was a lot of press. There was a lot of stuff around the her being there and whatever. So I was just trying to ignore it. I mean, look, with swimming, mate, it's like getting prepared for a big competition. You've got to learn to, to shut out, like, those sorts of things and just remain focused. And I've used a lot of that in these sort of high-pressure situations, you know, as well. So that's mm -hmm. another thing that I 
now look at in hindsight that maybe it's something that I did learn from swimming too. Yeah. So, so what happened on that shoot is that we were at the photo studio at one o'clock in the afternoon. I knew that she was starting a race at midday. She was meant to arrive at the studio at two o'clock in that, that afternoon. We're at four o'clock in the afternoon. So three hours after she's meant to arrive. Yeah. We get a phone call. They've had very rough seas on the Auckland Harbour and she's been vomiting. <laughs> she's, she's lying horizontal on the boat that sick that she's, she's been unable to start the America's Cup race. So they had to bring in someone else to actually oh, start the official gun. Oh, so here I am. It's like my first big celebrity I'm ever getting to shoot in my life. And this is all happening. And I've looked at my assistants. I've looked at the team that we've come over from Australia with. And I'm like, guys, this is the Clayton shoot, the shoot that's never going to happen. It's not happening. Mm. No way in the world. So I said, look, we may as well start breaking down. Um, you know, because we pre-lighted the studio, we had all our lights set up, we had everything set, like, you know, we were ready to do the shoot. We were, you know, we'd spent a few hours getting everything set up. And then um, <clears throat> I'm just basically telling the guys, we might as well start pulling everything down. Mm. So we're halfway through packing up. We get another phone call. Um, she really, really wants to do this shoot. It was a cover shoot for this mate, for, for Australian Harper's Bazaar. So I'm like, why haven't everyone, like, Stop, stop. Like, you know, so we, we reset it up. So it's it's like six o'clock. So we're meant to have, the shoot's meant to have happened at two. Yeah. Six o'clock, I've got the phone call, you know. She's going to, she's agreed to do it. 11 o'clock that <laughs> night, we're still waiting in the studio for her to arrive. Oh, typical supermodel. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> and you're not out of the blue, she rocks into the studio. Yeah. And I was like, you're kidding me, aren't you? And I got introduced to her, mate. She was green. Her face was still green. Really? She was not sick. And they had organised all this amazing catering for her and everything. So I said, look, you know, you're obviously still 100%. Why don't you sit and have something to eat? And she's like, listen, I'm really apologetic for this. I'm really so sorry. I, I, I'm so late. She was, I just couldn't believe it. Here's someone I'm like literally in awe of. Yeah. Like, famous models in the world and she's being so apologetic and I'm like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. She goes, look, I promised you guys that a cover and blah, blah, blah. And so I think we started the shoot at about 1130 at night and it went for about an hour. I think we wrapped at about one. Mm. We had a cover. We had all the inside shots. It was like, I'd never worked with anyone like that in my life. It was just incredible. And mm. then, she finished the shoot, walked outside. I walked outside with her and the whole, there were, there were literally hundreds of media. She promised you know, the Japan media, the American media. Everyone had been promised all these. I think she was out the front of the studio till three in the morning. Wow. Doing all the interviews. Wow. So I was like, wow. So from that day, from that day on, I'd sort of started a, a, a relationship with her, like a work relationship. And, um, you know, I've worked with her a bunch of times since then. Yeah. And, you know, I did Amiga campaigns with her. I've done a bunch of covers with her. I even, so recently as last year, she um, gave me her house to use as a location. Uh, oh, they wow. have an amazing property out of Malibu. And um, I had this big job booked with another celebrity and I thought, oh, wow. wow, 
it'll be amazing if I could shoot at their house because it's a gated sort of area of Malibu. Mm. It's quiet beach. And she said, yeah, no worries. So, Oh, mate, it's brilliant. So, yeah, she, she, she's an exception. She, she's amazing. I mean, she's, they're very normal people, her and her husband. And, um, yeah, like I said, just so incredibly professional. And um, so that was the first big celebrity that I ever worked with. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's awesome. So what are you doing when you're looking at, I mean, I'm intrigued by this. What are you looking at when you're looking down the lens? I mean, what are you looking for? <laughs> I, mean, I have no idea. Like I look in at camera and I'm like, all right, boom, snap. What are you looking for? Uh, well, look, a lot of the times it's about what they're wearing and models are like actresses and the way that they move. Like, you know, you might see you know, a rolling image basically the models they move in front of the camera, like whether they're running or they're jumping or they're acting out some sort of thing. It's, it's. Do you it's, talk to them while they're doing that? Are you one of those guys that talks to them? Absolutely. Every photographer directs the models. I mean, okay. you have to direct what they're doing, but okay. you know, a lot of it's based on what they're wearing. Yeah. You know, so it's like, you know, pretty much I'm like a film director, except mm. I'm capturing still moments of a moving image as opposed to filming a moving image. You know? Gotcha. So gotcha. How do you know when you got the one? Well, everything's set up to computers these days. The digital age, mate, I, I'm tethered with a cable through to the laptop, which is run by a technician, that, and I can literally look over my shoulder and see that I've got the picture. Oh, really? And how do you know which one is the one? How do you know? When, you, when, when I look at pictures, I'm like, sometimes I see photographers and they've got 20 photos and then there's one circle. I'm like, why'd you circle that one? You know, how'd you pick that one? Uh... Oh, look, it's, it's, for me, it's about the light, really. I mean, I'm sort of like known for the way I light things and stuff. So it's mm. always about the light, whether it's the way the light's hitting the face out of the window or, or the way the clothes are moving in the wind. I, I, I don't know. But yeah. I'm, I'm very, it's something that I've, I've become very quick at. I, oh. I look at something straight away and I know. Oh. Um, I work pretty quickly these days. I, oh, yeah. I don't like to spend too much time doing what you were just talking about, like going through things and, you know, yeah. being unsure. I'm pretty much sure once I find a great picture, I'll grab that and I'll move on to the next. Mm, okay. Okay. That's just now, a process you learn over time, I guess, that you just get better and better and quicker and quicker at, you know? Yeah. All right, man, we're going to, we're going to ask some tough ones then. What is, what, you got to give us some insights. What's the, what's the hardest shoot? What's the most awkward? I don't know. What's the, what's the one where you just remember like, Oh God, that was, that was a tough shoot. Um, <clears throat> tough shoots. Tough uh, customer. Any tough customers you're willing to oh, give up? <laughs> I think I don't really have tough customers because I think that I, create an environment where I've got a job that everyone feels pretty comfortable in. Okay. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I, and that's something, especially on a celebrity shoot, that's really important because, you know, if you work with a celebrity or someone that's well known, they're used to working with big people. They'll pick up on it. If they feel like you don't know what you're doing. Straight yeah. Away. That's what I mean. Yeah, for sure. So that, that just all gets down to experience. You know, okay. I've been fortunate to maybe not have too many bad things. I mean, I it's more the the B grade celebrities that might give you a hard time as opposed to the bigger one, known yeah. ones. You know, yeah. there's there was one instance a few years ago where I got given a hard time by someone, mate, and I just literally walked out of the studio, jumped in my car and went home. Really? Because I'm not 
about, I don't do this job to deal with that. You know, I'm a, I like to deal with nice people. I like to have a good time. I feel lucky to have this job. I worked hard to get good at it. Um, and it's a fun job. So if the environment's never not fun, then I'm not really doing what I do. So is that, is that a moment where you're asking somebody to do something and they're like, I'm not doing it or what's that? I'd never ask anyone to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. Really? Um, okay. You know, you might catch someone on a bad day and they're grumpy or moody or, you know. Yeah, yeah. You might, you might get the odd person that, you know, might complain about a pimple on their forehead. Mm. I'll ask you, what are you going to do about that? Mm. And these days with retouching, I mean, you know, nothing is what it seems. No, nothing is what it seems really. I mean, everything, every major magazine is retouched. Uh, I, don't like to, I don't like to do a lot of retouching. Um, but, you know, there's, every, every picture is retouched. Um, yeah. And, you know, I come from a film background, whereas, and coming from that kind of background, you had to get everything perfect because, you know, it's not like digital now where things can be imperfect and then digitally they can be fixed very instantly. That's the whole difference these days is everything's so quick, everything's so fast, everything's so instant, you know. It's, um, that's, the, that's the biggest difference that, that I came from that older school of learning photography where um, it was less forgiving, absolutely, you know. Yeah. Mate, I, I coach... Um my best at the highest level. Like I, I coach Olympians really well. I, I don't, I don't think I I'm great at 10 year olds, you know, uh, are you similar? Like, are you, I mean, there's obviously different things that you can photograph other than supermodels. Are you just really good at connecting with supermodels and then like, and, and photographing supermodels? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I why'd, you, why'd you stay there then? Why, why are you I, just in that? I definitely feel like, and once again, this goes back to my swimming. I once again feel like I'm, when I'm in the highest pressure environment, like yeah. a celebrity shoot with yeah. three or four TV cameras that might be there and in my face and filming me, filming them. Yeah. That's when I feel like I really thrive. Mm. And I, can, I, I have this ability to just slow my breathing down and be really calm. And that's when I think you think and you get everything done best when you can do that in that sort of high pressure environment. So yeah, maybe I do do that when I'm on a big celebrity shoot. Yeah. Um, but then again, I, I, I like to treat every shoot the same way. And um, it's the ability, I guess, to make someone feel comfortable Yeah. to make someone feel at ease. I mean, it's not really, the easiest thing. I hate taking my getting my picture taken. I hate it. I'm really? like, you, you got one second to get my picture. Otherwise, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'll walk off. I'm, 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 I hate getting my photo taken. It's weird. <laughs> um, so I try to be quick with people, and it is. It's weird. It's like you know, but and I do. It's funny because I, I work with a lot of sports people, um, and I know for a lot of them, it's the one thing that they don't enjoy. Yeah. Um, you know, I've worked with all, a lot of the top sports people and across all sorts of sports, rugby, surfing, swimming. I mean, I know that that's <clears throat> the one thing that when you put a camera in someone's face, yeah. it's, it's a true defining moment. I mean, mate, I had the Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, 
sitting opposite me, like I'm sitting this close to you, although we're a million miles away, with sweat dripping down his forehead, mm. nervous as all hell. Mm. Because he was just nervous about having a camera and someone taking his photo and I'm talking to him and stuff. And it's like, yeah. for a lot of people, it can be quite a confronting thing having a camera. And the athletes are the same. And I think a lot of athletes, though, now that when I work with them, they know that I was once an athlete. So straight away, there's a different vibe going on straight away. And I know how some of them are. Um, and I play on that a little bit and I know that, you know, I try to make them feel as comfortable as they can. And that's yeah. why I quite enjoy photographing um, athletes like that, you know, because I know that it's something that they're not comfortable with at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about in terms of the supermodels? Who's, who's the one where it's just been easy to, to, to take their photo? Like is really comfortable in front hey, of the camera. All, yeah. Beautiful. How could it not be easy to take your photo? I know I have that problem, but no, <laughs> no, I know I'm so uncomfortable in front of a camera, but then when I see them, it's just like, they're so, they're so natural. It just feels like, yeah. It's a job. Yeah. It's, it's a job. And it's just, it's no different for you being a swimming coach or doing whatever you might be doing. It's their profession. I mean, you know, I, I take my hat off. It's not easy being a model. It's not easy. Like, you know, are beautiful people, people insecure. Oh, Absolutely. Okay, good. Weirdly enough. Weirdly right, enough. Yeah. Right, good, good. Um, but you don't know what they've copped. You know, it was like, you know, you hear the stories about how many of the girls who were like at high school, yeah. the real pretty girls, yeah. that get picked on the most or, you know, bullied yeah. and stuff. I, I see a little bit of that. Uh -huh. um, you know, there's a lot to be like, you know, when, you, when you're a model and you're on a catwalk, for example, mate, you're out there mm. and the haters will come out made in droves really just oh, pick yeah. at you just pick little things oh look I, I i've been sitting across a table with someone who's quite a famous model before and she's posted a picture on say her instagram yeah i'm looking at her phone and i can see the comments just like coming in like just like thousands and thousands and she's just like her fingers just moving across like just to, and i'm like what are you doing she's like oh just deleting all the crap because uh, people are just bagging them. Really? Mm. So there's that side of stuff that, you know, someone yeah. who's in the media scrutiny like that, Yeah. I always think to myself, I'd never want to be famous, mate, because I've seen that side of it and it's not pretty. And you wonder why they get secure, insecure about stuff. Yeah. Interesting. Because I think, that, you know, yeah, I mean, it's easy enough to say, oh, look, this you know, take it like a grain of salt or whatever. Don't bother, bother that. When you're getting thousands and thousands of people commenting on and bagging you every day about the way you look or a dress or, you know, you look at those paparazzi pictures, mate. I mean, you know, how many times, you know, if there's magazines that are solely dedicated to someone who's walked out of the surf and they're running and they've got a bit of cellulite that's hanging off or yeah. one of their eyes just half shut and, that's yeah. the cover of the magazine. I mean, you know, it can't be a nice thing to, to, to have to be in that position. Yeah, absolutely. Mate, I saw this uh, super cool, interesting photo shoot that you put together, you know, during quarantine. Talk us through that, like how that evolved and, and, um, and, and you know, what you did there. Yeah, well, that was um, – look, I'm, I'm used to being out a lot. I'm used to working a fair bit. Um, 
interacting with groups of people and I'm a creative. I like, oh, my job is to take pictures. I mean, I get a kick out of taking pictures. I love doing it. Um, so when I'm all of a sudden in a position where I can't do that, um, after a week or so, you start to get a bit of an edge. You start to get a bit edgy. You, you, you want to do it. You want to. Yeah. So I started constantly thinking about how can I do things like this and what can I do to create? And I, you know, obviously things like Zoom and all these other <coughs> points of communicating have opened up and um, just came up with this idea is that why don't we just do a virtual shoot? I mean, I, I'd had enough Zoom com conferences and conversations with people to think, I could just photograph you down the screen. Really? Wow. So I went to a big modeling agency in Sydney who I'm very, who I work a lot with and because I needed, you know, the backing of one of these big agencies that manage all the top models and stuff. So, and they thought it was a great idea. And I was like, look, you know, it's important that I get models that aren't necessarily just in Sydney. You know, I, I want to try to get, Mainly, well, I wanted Australian, Australian and New Zealand models. That was important. And <clears throat> I knew that a lot of them were still holed up in New York. Mm. So, but through the Zoom, it didn't matter where you were, you know. So we put together a, a, a roster of 12 really well-known Australian and New Zealand models and we shot it over a couple of days and I'd spend, made a couple of minutes with each of them. And I know a lot of them anyway. So... Mm. I just we just have, have basically a conversation. I I literally I could see where they were in their room or whatever, and I'd say, look, maybe try and go. It's always the light's always pretty nice by a window, so I'd suggest that maybe you go by a wall near the window or something and let a little bit of daylight come in. But um, <clears throat> it was about you know because the light is so important on these things, you know. It's, yeah. But in saying that, two of the girls, one of the girls was in, and it was nighttime in New York, so. She was at her desk and just got a little desk lamp and mm. I got her to hold the desk lamp up there and use it like a little studio light. Oh, wow. Photograph like that. My, brilliant. And, and then it came out and there was just a huge response to it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, just, it was just about being proactive, just being busy, just doing something. And these days so much of my work as a photographer is involved around social media and stuff. So it was and about getting content out there and, I knew that there was a <clears throat> there was a, a period where I didn't really have things coming out for a while, so I ended up posting twelve different portraits in the one day that was shot in New Zealand, in New York, in Australia, in Canberra, in South Australia, in Tasmania, all over the place. Um, and yeah, the response was great. Yeah, fascinating, mate. It was, it was, it was gorgeous. I, I felt like I'd done something. I felt like. You know, because at the time, I, I'd never been so busy in all my life and I'm sitting in my little office like I am now and it was like, you know, knowing that I had to get this shot by then and I had to get on the phone to New York and I had to connect with this person, this person. It was like, it was qu pretty quick when it happened um, and I only spent a couple of minutes with each of the models. So it was, um, you know, obviously the quality of the pictures is not what I'm used to, but it wasn't really about the quality of the pictures. It was just about <clears throat> getting a message out there. Yeah, yeah. Getting out there and, and showing people that even though we're all in isolation, we're all stuck in our houses, blah, 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 that it didn't have to mean you couldn't t stop taking pictures. And it was amazing how many young photographers have messaged me, not just from Australia, but from everywhere and just said, man, you've inspired me to just do something. And mm. I'm seeing all 
time now, people doing these sorts of things. And um, this is good to be able to just think, you know, just because my hands are tied this way, that means I can't do that or this, you know. So it's just a lesson, I guess, in that. And, yeah. No, it was brilliant, mate. It was awesome. Loved it. Mate, we can't go throughout this whole podcast without giving a shout out to your brother. Um, Richie. Yeah, Richie. Yeah, Richard. Richard, uh, Richard Upton and I swam together for many years you know we traveled the world together him him and i and um and spent you know training camps together did a lot of things together i love that guy and um mate he was he was a tough competitor and um you know so it was definitely in the family is it like how was swimming in your family obviously the the two brothers were represented australia at the highest level i mean how was it growing up you know we were all i've got there's four of us okay uh, we were all swimmers. Um, my, my oldest brother, he was the first to give it up just because he'd finished high school and it was like <clears throat> he wasn't really at that sort of level, but he was off doing different things and he discovered life outside of the pool. So he was like, I'm out of here. I was the one that was really, really driven. Um, even when I was swimming, Richard was much younger than me. So he swam. Our other brother, Greg, he swam as well, but he was another one that just, you know, got, got a bit over it, got, got sick of the 4.30 a.m. wake-up calls, mate. Yeah, yeah. Which a lot of kids struggle with. Um, yeah. And Richard, you know, Richard was always in the background swimming and stuff, you know, and I guess he probably was looking up to me and seeing what I I was doing and stuff. And and then I moved to camp. I, I left home when I was 16. I think Richard might have been about 11 or so at the, at the time or 12. Yeah. Okay. So basically, uh, his swimming career evolved basically when I wasn't here. Mm, yeah. Because um, yeah, I was away for five years from the age of 16 to 21. So pretty much he did his whole thing on his own. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, you know, without that, with, you know, obviously with the help of my parents, because let's face it, you know, unless you've got the parents making the sacrifice, driving you to the pool and all the rest of it, you've know, you got no hope. Big time, yeah, big time. That's what I mean, you know. Your parents must have been really into it. That's that's awesome. Yeah, they mate, loved it. Yeah, loved it. mate, I had a lot of great times with your brother. Love that guy. So please, please say hi to him for me, all right? Um, all right. Listen, mate, it's been awesome chatting with you. Uh, super excited about Tyson coming over to Florida and yep. um, you know, keeping that keeping that going. So um, appreciate the chat, mate. It's been Sorry, awesome. Good yeah. on you, Brett. All right, mate. We'll catch up soon, all right? Cheers, buddy. See you, mate. Bye. Thanks, buddy.